Introduced by Dr. Joe Nichols, Dr. Aaron Fried Pfeiffer unlocks his definitive knowledge of soils, relating the connection between plants and animals, nutrition and metabolism, protein and health. He debunks the official figures for protein intake and cites most protein sources as being deficient, especially grains. Further, the human diet requires no more than one-third of the protein level blessed by officialdom as being mandatory. The toxic condition that results from overeating can be remedied by natural foods and foods carefully prepared both by trade channels and by the home kitchen. Pfeiffer compares dead soil to living soil and translates the latter into enzyme production. This lesson has been available for decades, yet it is still being ignored by much of academia. that he had his 114 gram of protein and a gallon of beer a day, 
he was willing to do that experiment. And this is how it came about with this janitor, whose name is forgotten nowadays, that Atwater came to America. 114 grams of protein a day. And calories, exactly the same figure as we still have had until very recently. Now, Atwater, of course, thought America is so much greater and the American labor and the American people are so much better fed than they are in Europe. Now, mind, this was in 1879, that he, uh, 114 grams of protein might not be enough. And so he decided on the basis of his experiments and considerations that a human being needs 140 grams of protein. I have made surveys, food surveys, with students at Fairly Dickinson University, and I find about two-thirds who still live at the Atwater level of protein today. Uh, now, at the same time, when Atwater then became the director of the experimental station, agriculture experimental station of Connecticut, uh, there was a Professor Chittenden at Yale. <coughs> then was a biochemist, but, uh, uh, that is a chemist, at that time biochemistry didn't exist yet, but Chittenden unfortunately was a very lean, slim fellow with an ulcer. And of course eating to him was no pleasure. And he discovered if he would reduce his protein and his caloric intake, he could get along with 40 grams of protein a day and he survived. So there we have the school at water, 140, the school children, 40 grams of protein a day, and I think both uh, matured to old age. Now, you don't hear that story, and also most of the nutritionists never read history. But if we read this little history, I would say things turn around in cycles and come back also, they do sometimes not only come back, but they backfire. Now, at the present moment, the officially announced protein level is 70 grams for somebody of a weight of 165 pounds. And it usually is expressed in another figure, and that means 1 kilogram, 2.2 uh, pound, of, of one, 1 gram, which is the 30th of an ounce, for 2.2 pound or one kilogram of body weight. This at the present moment is the figure for, of the National Research Council. Now, two years ago, something very peculiar happened. That was really a very exciting moment. It didn't get into the big news. And this was that a commission of the United Nations uh, FAO sat together with representatives of 26 different countries and reviewed the whole nutritional situation and they discovered that we do not need one gram per kilogram but you can get away with 0.35 that is a little bit more than one third of the official figure uh, provided that we have the proper amino acid balance. Now what does it mean? It means the protein is being built up of amino acids and it can be built up in many different ways. But there is only one proper, proper composition of amino acids which has 
the maximum nutritious value. Most of the protein which we get nowadays is deficient in one or the other. For instance, most of the grain is deficient in lysine. We have even such facts that by processing and especially baking, I will later talk a little more about that, lysine is destroyed. So even if we had before a good protein, it becomes less efficient. And so we learned, and this is the most revolutionary finding, actually, nutrition of this century, that if the amino acid balance is correct, you need only a third of the protein as the official figure of one gram per kilogram is. That is, you can easily get away with 35 to 40 grams of protein. But who does? That is the problem. Because the question then is, do we really get, and if we don't, how could we get that very well-balanced protein, which means maximum efficiency? I have to say a word about what I mean with maximum efficiency. You know, if you drive a car and you stop suddenly out of high speed, there's a chance that the carburetor is flooded. Now, in this case, if the carburetor is flooded, or if you wanted to start it, it didn't start well, if the carburetor is flooded, there is no other way but to wait until the excess gasoline has evaporated. Now, your body can be compared with such a situation that under circumstances with overeating or eating the wrong calories or the wrong protein quality, your carburetor is flooded. And of course, you cannot step more on the gas and eat more. It wouldn't help you think. In fact, you have to do the opposite. You have to reduce. Then the toxic breakdown products of the metabolism are eliminated out of the body system and our cells, blood circulation, organs, kidney, liver, etc. That is, the building up and the removal of the waste products is functioning again I would say, at normal speed. Now here we have the problem in a nutshell. Do we have fast enough a turnover of that which we eat without choking our carburetor or flooding our carburetor? And are we then in a position that this uh, human organism is able to function properly? Our nutritional diseases rest on that point that sooner or later in a human life, a moment will come when the efficiency of digestion and utilization is reduced. Now, this picture in mind, I started out doing research first, in which way can I find in nature a situation that I get the most uh, efficient, well-balanced protein of which I need less, and therefore the utilization in the human body is better, because I am coping with less waste products and toxic products than otherwise. I am actually convinced, and I have tried that on myself, and I've tried that in many other cases, that if you are on the low edge of your caloric intake and protein and carbohydrate and fat intake, you're faring better with your health than if you eat too much. If you eat on the heavy side, 
we have to deal with too many waste products in the human being, which as long as you don't have a sedentary life can be eliminated. Now I give you one picture. 40% of the carbohydrate and sugar you eat leaves the body by respiration through the lung. So if you had some toast this morning or muffins or sugar in your coffee, that is if you had any carbohydrate this morning for your breakfast, about this time now you begin to exhale carbon dioxide which comes from this breakfast. And this you all do. Now that of course in due time with so many people here in the room and without uh, uh, no air conditioning would make a rather stale air. And actually it's 40% of your breakfast which goes here into the air right now. Now this, uh, I mean, causes a toxic condition eventually, and so it does in your body. If your metabolism is right, this danger, every meal danger, is over within an hour or two. If your metabolism is not right, you don't exhale the right thing, and then you have a congestion, and this congestion eventually in your body system might tr cause trouble. This is how it starts to have trouble. Now we try to see in which way is this process of metabolism in the human being supported or not. Uh, supported, the metabolism in the human body is by such substances as vitamins and especially by enzymes. Because enzymes are these miraculous substances they are very complicatedly built of proteins which metabolize, that is, they connect one substance with another and disconnect and build and rebuild and eventually they help also to throw out that which is of no good anymore. This is the function of an enzyme. It is a function which is there interesting, not so much the chemical formula of the enzyme. No process in nature, no life in a plant or animal or a human being or exchange of substance or metabolism is possible unless there are enzyme systems connected with it. How magnificent this is, we might gather if we realize that there are about 10,000 enzyme reactions per minute in each cell of the body. This is something the human brain is not even able yet to follow and understand completely. But that speed and efficiency of exchange of substance is on the basis of health. Now we are therefore interested to which extent are natural substances, proteins or carbohydrate or uh, fat or oil or uh, vitamins, are they connected with enzyme systems which make them adaptable or make them so that they can be utilized by a growing cell and make them therefore efficient. That is about the problem. Now I'd like to show you a few slides. Some of them are alright, some of them are a little small and I have to ask your patience. In the tests which we are doing we have great difficulties the results which we obtain to photograph up to the present moment. So I try my best. Now, the tests we are using in order to determine protein quality and enzyme activity, there are many. Some would be just feeding tests with animal or with human being. Feeding tests take a long time. 
Feeding tests take maybe two, three, four, six, eight weeks. Feeding tests on mice and rats and pigeons and rabbits, you cannot always translate immediately into the language of human beings. And feeding tests on human beings, it's almost impossible to do because you don't find somebody willing to go on a specific diet for four weeks or you have the janitor in Munich, he wants a, a gallon of beer and that of course would not help his metabolism, I'm quite sure. Uh, I happen to know that he finally died of a enlarged liver or atrophy or such a thing of the liver. I mean a gallon of beer a day is just asking too much. We are not built for that even not in Munich. Now then, uh, we have that problem. To which extent are these uh, uh, enzymes present? And I happen to have the good luck to hit on a very simple method where we extract any living or dead uh, cell or organ or meat or seed, and then we extract it with a mild alkaline solution and we let this pass by capillarity that is sucking up by a paper which is sensitized. So that is a very simple method. And this method tells us a lot about enzymes and vitamins. Now I show you several slides and I think the slides would best tell you what I really have to report. At the end then we will draw a few conclusions. Uh, now let's get started on this. It's one of these uh, Further paper pictures, as we call them, chromatograms. And this is of a natural vitamin C. <coughs> this vitamin is fr made from vitamin C, is extracted from rosehip. Typical for the enzymes are the forms on the outside. These spokes or spikes are typical for enzymatic reaction and the radiating forms which you see from there moving towards the center also are typical for enzyme reaction. The color is typical for that particular vitamin that is particularly the yellow-brown color. In ultraviolet light we see more than you see here. We see all around a ring fluorescent which tells us more, even more, about the presence of the vitamin C. So we have in this natural extracted vitamin C, we have present the potency of vitamin C, and we have present the enzyme system, which at the same time helps us to utilize this vitamin C. Now the next. This is chemically exactly the same vitamin C as corbic acid synthetically produced. There is nothing of the enzyme reaction. You just have a pure substance, but you have nothing of the intrinsic factor. So in these two pictures, you have had the difference between a natural product and a synthetic product. In the human metabolism, the interesting thing is that if we take vitamin C, it is excreted within 24 hours so that we find the vitamin C which we have been eating after 24 hours in the urine. If we take a natural vitamin C, so it seems, I say that with a grain of salt because only very few experiments have been made, if we take a natural vitamin C, 
the vitamin C is retained in the body. That is, it can be utilized over and over again, while the synthetic vitamin C, after it has done its purpose, is excreted immediately. Well, biologically, that means a world. That means a difference of worlds, really. Whether a substance is useful, it can be retained, or has lost its purpose and has to be excreted. That is quite a different efficiency. I would say in the terms of protein, if you get the right pattern of protein, you need half as much or a third as much as otherwise. And so it would be with the established figures for vitamin deficiency. <coughs> the next one. Here we have another vitamin C uh, extracted from acerola. Uh, the one vitamin preparation I received from Mr. Schiff, and this one here, I received from Mr. Irons. And I had the uh, opportunity to check into these and see that these preparations were very typical natural vitamin preparations, which differed entirely from the synthetic. The next, please. Now, here we have a problem in an entirely different field. I just introduced, you know, in the observations which can be made on a chromatogram. Later on, we will draw conclusions. You have on the left side here, towards me, the extract of a dead soil. A soil below 1.5% organic matter, very poor soil with poor yield, and uh, that's all there is to it. On the right side, you have a soil with a high percentage of humus in very fertile condition. That is, you have the extreme between a living soil on the left side, that is your right side, and on this side here, this here is the poor soil. The other one uh, on the other side over there, far away from me, is the very rich humus soil. So you see there is a difference in color, there is a difference in the formation of the different zones, and again, you have more enzyme pattern in this soil because of the micro life in this soil on the living soil. The next. Now here we have a pattern where we see practically uh, uh, I would say, you would say probably it's poor focus. Everything is smudged. You see these edges protruding, protruding towards the center? They are very smudged and unclear. But it is a living product because otherwise we would not be able to uh, uh, exactly recognize uh, the pattern as we see it. There's some trouble up here, there's no light, and I don't have a match with me, so if, uh, if somebody has a match, I just want to check something here in my notes. Well, you have the choice. Extract of old leaves from young oats uh, growing on a mineral fertilized soil, and the next picture, I hope will be the extract then of the, uh, now that's something gone wrong, that's just what I was afraid of. 
here is the mineral oats and the previous one were the organic oats. Now they were not too good uh, because the oats, both of them had rust on their leaves. But nevertheless, the difference between mineral and organic shows up all right. Now the next, please. We have a little better differentiation. This side towards B, again, is the mineral-feralized peanut leaves, and the other one are the organically-feralized peanut leaves. They came from Florida and were treated with the Hoosier soil blend on the right side. On the left side, not. We made an analysis of the peanuts, too, which also showed a lot of differences with regard to oil and with regard to its protein. Again, you see that slight difference of a more wavy, uninterrupted pattern on the more vital product as compared with the more smudged pattern on the other product. That would, up to the present moment, be our general criteria for that which has more enzyme vitality. The next. Now, up there, we have on top a natural vitamin preparation, a nutritional supplement, if you may say, which has now the complete pattern of all the vitamins contained, B and C, of all the enzymes contained. In the laboratory, we have reproduced this natural extract from uh, green leaves. We have uh, reproduced that with synthetic products, synthetic vitamins, minerals, and then compost. The very left here is the mixture of all the synthetic ingredients exactly in the same pro uh, proportion as they were in the picture on top. The middle one is the vitamins and to the right the minerals. So vitamins and minerals synthetically mixed together and synthetically producing exactly the same formula as you see on top there against the natural. Now here of course you have a very drastic difference and you can from here on tell immediately on the chromatogram whether you deal with a synthetic or a natural product. Next. Before I showed you uh, vitamin C, this is vitamin uh, B complex, to the right natural and to the left synthetic. Again, you see the difference that in the synthetic product you might have the pure chemical, but you do not have the intrinsic concomitant factors which help to metabolize and to activate the natural product. And in that, I would say, is a whole case history of different behavior in the human organization. Next. Now we have a different problem. I have to build this up gradually, going through the different realms of nature. <laughs> On this side towards me, you have pure white sugar. On the other side, to the right, you have raw sugar. You see that the raw sugar contains a little bit more color and a little bit more formation than the pure white sugar. Going from the raw sugar to the pure white sugar, we therefore have something lost. That one which we have lost, we want to know, want to learn about. Now the next picture. 
there we have a lot of different things. We have raw, uh, raw sugar on this picture. Uh, then we have brown sugar. And then we have honey. Now the raw sugar, the, the brown sugar is on the right, that is on my left, on your right, in the far corner up. Uh, the picture in the middle is maple sugar, which is entirely different. The picture on top here is raw honey, and this picture here is raw honey boiled. You know, some people boil the honey, and we lose something very definite if we boil the honey. Now, this here is molasses, uh, grandma molasses, that is a sugar, actually what is left from the sugar and where all the richnesses of enzymes and vitamins are, which are not in the raw sugar. Oh yeah, thanks a lot. The difference, raw sugar, brown sugar, honey raw, honey boiled molasses and maple sugar in the center. So each sugar shows a different pattern. The more color, the more rings, the more formation, the more biologically active the value of this particular product is. Now next. Again, the difference between the raw honey to the right and the boiled honey to the left so that you see again by boiling we lose something in this honey what we lose of course is part of the vitamins there are not too many in honey and of uh, enzymes especially of enzymes now the next now comes one of the most fascinating things i have done this all is milk and you see on top here close to me here in this corner on my side on top you see raw milk. Then the next picture shows you the same milk pasteurized at 66 degrees centigrade, 151 Fahrenheit. The picture on upper right corner, a hundred de uh, degree boiling point of uh, boiling of milk. Now you see if you look here on this left picture here. You see what I call an open pattern. The edges around here are open, while we see a lot of vitamins and especially of enzymes in the boiled Now this picture on top to the left, you have to compare with this picture here on the bottom. And here is a mystery. This I cannot explain to you, I just tell you. Uh, the mystery is, that we have here a, the same milk as on top and we get almost the same living pattern but this milk has been scalded twice that is if you pasteurize your milk you destroy enzymes if you boil your milk you destroy enzymes if you scald the milk twice just let it come up and down and up again you restore in that milk something to its original enzyme quality I have recently read, well, I wouldn't bother with it, I, I can manage. I have recently read that 
there are enzymes which, because of this scalding, of this coming up of the milk, are, uh, are moved about and brought to the air, and oxygen is added, and then these enzymes, uh, in turn, will become valuable again. I will add the end. Thanks a lot. Now we are really in business. I, uh, uh, you see, this is the important thing on the milk pattern. You have these open spaces here, which means the highest degree of enzyme activity, as we have seen it on some of the vitamin preparations. Over here, we have that closed area here, which means burned off enzymes. We still have enzymes in here, but they are destroyed by heat. Now, here we have the open spaces again. We know that there are heat-resistant enzymes and there are uh, heat-resistant uh, proteins which do not coagulate. Uh, and this is a research I will tell at the end of this lecture. Here we have a commercial skim milk, dried, dried skim milk here, which is entirely different from the original milk parent. And here we have another trial to dry a milk, whole milk powder in order to preserve the enzymes. The next picture. Well, here we have something I hardly don't dare to tell you what it is. This here on, on this side here is oleomargarine, and this is a good farm butter. Well, who wants to eat that here is my question. I don't think we need to argue anything anymore, even if it would contain the same amount of fat and God knows what. There is no biological activity here, while we have here an extreme biological activity of, as we know, the vitamin A, the vitamin E, that all that which is really in butter contained. So that is an interesting difference. The next. See, I'm showing you only a few out of that great menu of research we have done. This is synthetic vitamin A, alpha uh, with vitamin A palmitate synthetic, and this is a uh, vitamin A in cod liver oil. Natural, unharmed, preserved, synthetic. There is no doubt that there is a difference. Biologically, I think eventually in feeding tests and otherwise, one will also discover this difference. Next. Oh, wow, we had bad luck here. There must be two, two, one on top of the other. Is that possible to pull them out? You caught two slides. That please, that doesn't matter. Again, a milk, a good organic milk from an organic or biodynamic farm. Uh, Great A milk, but it is pasteurized. This one here is a commercial milk which I picked up in a store, a food store, uh, also pasteurized. There is a tremendous difference. This also is great A milk, but the picture is pale, is faded, and does not have anywhere the strength and natural vitality of this picture here. Now let's go into the next. Let's see whether. Yeah, all right. It's all right. It's all right. I have plenty of them now. I can start some business here selling. Now, here uh, is a picture of a seed. This is a wheat, organically grown, 
and this seed will germinate. Uh, a seed which will germinate, therefore is a living seed, shows these white spots here. No other seed, if it's dead, will show these white spots. Only in living material we find these white spots. Otherwise, of course, in the seed you have carbohydrates, which is this brown ring here and the other brown ring, and we have proteins which are characterized by this here spokes. The way these spokes are built tells us about the protein and its composition. There's a lot of detailed knowledge in it. But the main important thing is this is a living seed pattern. Now the next. The very same seed with the very same amount of protein, carbohydrate, minerals, oils, but this seed has been dis uh, heated up so that it will not germinate. 30 minutes at the temperature of boiling point of water. Chemically, the seed is identical with the other one, but it does not contain the, the enzymes anymore which would support germination. But chemically, it's the same. If you make flour of this seed and of the previous one, your flour looks alike, you would never know the difference. But this is a dead seed and the other one a living seed. So that is a very important difference for which we are looking because we want now to know how to preserve that particular factor which supports life. The next. Here is whole wheat flour. And this is white bleached flour. The whole wheat flour still contains the li a little bit of that life which we saw in the seed. It also contains the vitamins. We see the pinkish color here, which is thiamine. It contains the protein in an undisturbed, dam uh, undamaged state, and of course the starches. In white flour... Yeah, all right. Now, next time, I'm giving a lecture again to this outfit here. I also like to have a better mic. Uh, it's, uh, I don't want to be the slave, slave of the mic and have my lips tied to the mic all the time. We always have this trouble that we get such poor mics. At home, I have a mic in my laboratory. I can speak to it at a distance of 12 feet, and it still picks it up. I don't know why we always have to have these poor mics here. We have here uh, practically nothing left of the life pattern of uh, this original whole wheat. This, as we will see a little later, is a very important problem. Next. Here, uh, we have here the life seed again with the signs of life. We have here the other seed with no signs of life. Chemically the same. Protein percentage, protein pattern even, carbohydrate, all the same. This seed here germinates. On the first day of germination, we get this picture here. On the second day, this one here. And on the third day, we get this picture here. Now, the difference is that on the first day, the germinating seed means that the original protein in the seed and in the germ fall apart, they break down, and on the second and third day, the new germ begins to grow and synthesize new material. That is, at the beginning of germination, we have a breakdown process, chemically seen, biochemically seen. Later on, we have a synthesis, a building up. 
And this is very easy pictured in these chromatographs. To you, that means a very important thing, and that means at which state of affairs should you eat sprouts? And I would say, don't eat the sprouts the, uh, when they are just begin to swell up, because at that time you have not a nourishing quality in the sprouts. Eat the sprouts a little later. Wheat, for instance, on the second day, just when they break open and the root would come out of the germ. Then you get the maximum benefit of the enzymes. I feel obliged to tell that and call your attention to it because I have seen experiments being conducted and I have heard of men and women who have tried sprouts and have had no results with regard to their health. And I have seen also bread from sprouted weeds which did not contain any enzymatic activity for the reason that the sprout was used in the wrong moment. Below here, we have the other seed. We have the dead seed that we put in water and of course it will swell up and it will decay. It will not sprout and you have three days of succession in succession with the decay. So on top you have a pattern of life, increasing life, new life, and here a pattern of death, increasing death processes in the biochemistry of that seed. That again tells you that we are now able to catch how much of a breakdown of a dying process we will have in a certain food or seed or sprout or anything we are trying to check. Now the next please. Here is something very interesting. I have here a whole wheat flower with signs of life, not all of them, because almost every milling process takes away something of the enzymatic reaction in the seed. Then I have here the bran separated, I have here the alluron layer separated, that is the protein layer in the seed. I have over there a flower from which the brand has been separated. We see a gradual decrease of biological activity, presence of enzymes in these different states of the processing of weed to flower. Now the next. These are the enzymes which you can isolate out of a weed and even out of a flower a diastatic enzyme and a protein digesting enzymes. These are still there uh, even when we make flour. Next. Not always, but sometimes.